Welcome to day one of the post-Ralph Kruger era here on Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK. I am Tim Graham of The Athletic, here with Matthew Fairburn, also of The Athletic, and Jonah Bronstein of Bronstein Consolidated. Um, the Sabres finally fired Ralph Kruger, and uh, oh, I should say, we're going to be joined uh, later on in this podcast, in fact, fairly soon, uh, by New York Post sports columnist and St. Bonaventure grad Mike Vaccaro uh, to talk about journalism and uh, his, uh, his Bonnies who are playing uh, Louisiana state in the first round of the NCAA basketball tournament on Saturday. Uh, but uh, guys, uh, Ralph Kruger's gone. Um, I think that was something that was to be expected. Um, my, reportage had told me that he was done for, but uh, was probably going to be given the rest of the season, but it just got to be too much for the Pagulas to take after 12 straight losses. Um, I guess just uh, your thoughts on, on the decision and the timing of it. Yeah. We talked the other day about what, you know, the, the pros and cons of each approach, if they'd be able to, you know, kind of, bury their heads and, and push forward until May. But I do think you're right. It became a bit too much. It became, that became the story of this team, you know, every day, every time he opened his mouth, every time he did a press conference, there was something. Um, and we, we spoke the other day about, you know, how those press conferences were seemingly becoming the story, the, the combative nature and the, the repetitive combat, combative nature of those press conferences, um, which was not Ralph Kruger's fault, but it became a point of, do you want this being the representation of the Buffalo Sabres on a near daily basis? Well, how about uh, this, Matthew? Uh, Jonah Bronstein and I get together at Elmo's last night for a few beers and the game's on, of course. And afterwards, um, Adam behind the bar goes to put on music and there was uh, some pushback of uh, wanting to listen to the post-game news conferences from you. There wasn't pushback from anybody else. There <laughs> well, not, once, there but once I mentioned, once there. I mentioned it, uh, there were others at the bar that were, you know, well, at least one, the guy to my left uh, was also in, very much into it. Um, anyway. They want a pound of, they wanted a pound of flesh daily. And there were some reporters happy to play that game. And it became, it was not just quietly going about losing. Uh, it was not just, if they had sprinkled in some wins in this and, you know, there was some, uh, you know, it, and it wasn't so, and I'm not saying that he got fired because of the media or because of the fans or whatever, but I just think it became too much. Yeah, if there'd been stacked. anything to disrupt the malaise, a, you know, like you say, a win in which Sam Reinhardt gets a hat trick or whatever, a shutout, you know, so we, so some, somebody can, you know, talk about Carter Hutton for a couple of days, but it, there was no break, no break. Dylan Cousins was the last break. What, you know, Dylan Cousins gets in that fight. He becomes kind of a, a feel good moment. Um, I don't know that anybody expected that to spark this team, you know, I've seen uh, Bulldogs been tweeting out the the stats since the fight uh, to illustrate uh, clearly it did not fire up the boys, but I think, 
what it did was it, it said, look, there's a guy who cares. There's like one encouraging piece of this organizational puzzle. Uh, certainly didn't have an impact on the rest of the team because team's just not very good. Um, there's, you know, issues beyond that, but that was the last time that it felt like Ralph Kruger wasn't just the constant story, the constant, everything he said, every time he opened his mouth, um, every time another reporter told him he sucked uh, and that his team didn't care about him and, you know, all this stuff, like, it just became, that was what people were talking about. It wasn't even how bad the Sabres sucked. It was, you know, this coach. And so getting rid of, you know, there were some things they had to get squared away. I don't think the Pagoulas entered this season planning on this being a thing they had to deal with necessarily. Even if they were bad, if they were as bad as they've been the last few years, it could be like, well, we get by to the end of the season and fire them. They had to go through a few different things, probably first of which saying, Hey, does Kevin Adams have permission to do this? Like, do we want to give Kevin Adams the authority to fire this coach or even just present that publicly that he has the ability to do this? You got to square that away first. And then you had to square away logistically everything that had to happen. Who can be the interim coach, you know, with quarantine rules and everything happening in Rochester? Um, Do you want to hire immediately and, and secretly quarantine a coach or something? There was, more complicated than a normal year and probably not something they were even thinking about doing, but it did seem to bring down the temperature in the room when Kevin Adams spoke uh, today, which I guess is a minor win considering what they've had the last couple of months. It's also the matter of, is this going to change anything on the ice and in the locker room for this team, especially when you're elevating from within, you would think that, it's probably going to keep a lot of the same systems and culture of the team, at least in the short term, or will it be, you know, I remember when uh, Dick Duran got fired and Perry fuel was the interim head coach and he made a lot of changes. He changed the quarterback and he kind of, and maybe that was just for show to, to, to show what changes he could make, but it seemed like he sensed that things needed to change, even if they weren't big changes that you couldn't go forward with the same, group and the same dynamic and so I'll be curious to see whether the Sabres win lose or play well in these next couple games are there changes in the way they play or the way the lineup is constructed or is it more of the same because if it is you know then we realize Ralph Kruger wasn't really the problem maybe you see Jeff Skinner on a line with uh with Jack Eichel when Jack Eichel comes back uh from his injury which Kevin Adams said on the news conference that uh he's you know, he's, he's coming back, that uh, there was a quarantine situation. He went out of state for a, for a second opinion. And so it seems as though uh, Jack Eichel would be playing again at some point. So um, yeah, there's really not a lot you can do in hockey, like in football, you mentioned all the different, you know, change your starting quarterback. I mean, especially the Sabres, there's no goaltending controversy. I mean, it's not like you can do that uh, about the only thing you can do is, is just uh juggle your lines a little bit and they can't call up players from Rochester right now to shake things up or make a statement to some of the veteran players it seems yeah. like Skinner is the one that they can that that's sort of the shining example of like where Ralph Kruger butted heads with a player the only open one you know the the big story the last few weeks became oh they've quit on on Ralph Kruger which 
I think is probably the laziest take you can have. It requires no thought. Nobody's going to argue with it because they're getting their ass kicked every night. And you can't prove it. You can't prove it. You can't disprove it. You can just say it and yell it loudly and puff your chest and body people. And it's great. You know, it's awesome. But I think it's lousy, a lousy take and, a, and one that there was no discernible. There's no evidence on the ice that they've quit. Are they burnt out? Have they lost confidence? You know, do you have a tracker on them? That, have you heard them say something to the coach? Their one example is Jeff Skinner of a, of a situation where it clearly didn't go well. Um, that Sam Reinhardt actually, you know, who's a, not a great quote. And I don't think a lot of people who cover the team rely on him for insight. But the other night when, uh, Mike Harrington asked, you know, said this team looks like it's quit and Sam Reinhardt probably responded best by saying, I don't know what you want me to say. Like, I like this coach. I like the guys around me. Akposo was talking about, you know, how, how tough it is to, to get up for these games when, it's going that way. There's a psychological element, but like, were they outwardly defiant against the coach? I don't think so. Uh, like you said, it's really hard to prove, but the Jeff Skinner part is one where you can say, look, this is a, or two guys, I think Skinner and Darlene, where you could say, these guys are being put in roles that aren't working because of this coach. If I'm an interim coach, I'm letting Rasmus Darlene loose, say, basically do whatever the hell you want. It can't get any worse. So if there's a, an offensive game that you feel like you haven't been able to play under the old coach, go and get you some, like we need some goals. And the other thing is bump Jeff Skinner up, give him some confidence, give him some reason to want to play here. Because I think those are the two guys that you look at and say, there is some evidence that there was a bit of an issue with the coach. Now I'm not saying Darlene had an issue, but you could say that his play went backwards because of this coach and probably, you know, find some pretty concrete examples of it. So yeah, maybe there's a way to, to provide a bit of a jolt that way, but, you know, talk to, to Chris Baker about this team quite a bit because he's, I feel like pretty knowledgeable uh, on the hockey scene and he's seen a lot and all along his thing has just been that the team is not good. You know, that there's not a lot of talent on the team and is Kruger part of the problem? Sure. He certainly was. And it became an, almost impossible thing to keep them around to a certain point, but there are other questions that need to be asked, including whether this general manager is going to be the one to turn things around or, you know, like, like Jonah said, there's not much you can do right now, but you know, what is the plan going forward and and what sort of power does he have? Who's he listening to? Who, Who does he get input from? Who do you surround him with? And if the big one, you know, Jack Eichel potentially getting traded, which won't happen at the deadline most likely, but that chatter will resume in the off season. Do you let this guy make that trade? Like that is a massive trade to make. Like if they do it, could you justify it? Could you get a return? Like maybe, maybe. Kevin Adams did say on his news conference that he will be hiring an assistant GM, which kind of amazing to think that that's a conclusion that's being come to, uh, you know, uh, in the middle of March uh, that, oh, you know, let's hire an assistant GM when there were two last year and a bunch of scouts. And now the team is, you know, has half as many scouts and no assistant general managers. Um, you know, one of the, the captains that I spoke to for that uh, piece uh, that I wrote for the athletic a couple of weeks ago regarding 
what's been going on with the Sabres and their thoughts. Uh, one of those uh, anonymous captains specifically mentioned, let these guys tur- you know, turn them loose. Let them scoring goals is fun. You might lose the game still because maybe you give up too much on defense, but just let, I mean, these guys are clearly not having fun out there. They're not let them go score some goals. Too. They had like two shots in the first yeah. period the other night. I mean, so yeah, well, sure. Go get out of your a, system, whatever it, whatever that system is. Get out of it. Let them just go. Go, go you know, lose maybe, a game. Maybe eight you to give five. up some. Yeah, maybe you give up some three on twos. Yeah, uh, but whatever. You know, let's have let's just get out there and skate and, and shoot. What maybe that, maybe the next coach go. will allow them to do that. Do either of you think? And Kevin Adams was asked about this and said it wasn't the case. But do either of you think that the the fact that fans are coming back for the first time this week and will be in the building for the rest of the games precipitated this move at all? Was this sort of a, you know, move to get ahead of that, to keep from an ugly situation where the fans would be booing them constantly in these games? I hope that that didn't factor into it because that is a rather soft reason to want to fire somebody. If you believe in your guy, then you should stick with them. The fans booing, uh, whatever, uh, however many there are that are going to show up. Maybe the maybe the feedback though that they got in reaching out to their season ticket holders. You know, obviously it went from season ticket holders. They they didn't clear enough tickets for that. So then they put the tickets on sale to the general public. Clearly there wasn't enough interest there because then all of a sudden first responders uh, we're going to be giving our tickets away to the first responders. Um, it. it but maybe in the, their market research or just fielding the phone calls or is there whatever, is that maybe they caught wind that there were going to be signs or like there were the people who were coming, were coming for that reason. Um, but I would hope maybe, that, that maybe it was a wake up call to how little interest there was in attending these games. And there weren't too many ways the ownership could respond to that, but this was one way that they could do something that a lot of fans were asking for and maybe get a little bit of goodwill at least temporarily from making this seemingly popular move right before the, not the home opener, but the home fan opener. Right. It's, it's going to be difficult to boo the coach. You really don't know anything about, which is the case uh, with, with the, uh, with the replacement uh, Granado. Um, interesting. I had uh, tweeted it out. Uh, the betting odds um, are, <laughs> the favorite uh, to be the next Sabres full-time head coach uh, is John Tortorella. And I would love to see that. Uh, yeah, great that for would, us. Huh? It's great for the reporters it, covering the team. It would be great to see how the reporters on this team, uh, if they have the temerity uh, to treat John Tortorella with the same attitude as they've treated uh, Kevin Adams and uh, and Ralph Kruger, uh, because there would be, well, I think some of these reporters would get bodied. I think there there could be some bodying happening. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just some. Well, but that isn't that what this team kind of needs. Like, oh, I think your team quit. I think you're, you know, like. John Worrell made a great point. Wouldn't yeah, it be like, like wouldn't the, the team would, love, I mean, the players would love to see Kruger just at least stand up and defend himself rather than just keep taking it. 
Right. Like get bent, you know, you don't have to like tell them to F off or anything, you know, cause that's going to cause more trouble than it's worth probably. But, you know, tell, I don't know, tell a guy to grow up, like ask me a question. Like you got, you know, we've seen it happen before. Tortorella is probably the best example, but I don't know. It, it might've gotten something out of the team, you know, to, because yeah. kind of like Sam Reinhardt, who was like, what, what the hell do you want me to say? Like, you know, and we see it from, you know, I think Sean McDermott can be that way at times. He's not John Tortorella, but he'll certainly uh, stop you in your tracks um, and, you know, have kind of a, an attitude at times. And I'm sure it's, I don't know, there's, there's something to it. I think John Morrow was onto something there. That was, what other cards do you have to play if you're Ralph Kruger, you know, master motivator, psychological genius, ran out of cards he was saying the same thing over and over i mean he he had a, an option there and i, I think respect. he had like a 37 card deck uh i, I respect it how didn't he seem like he, he had like, a lot of cards in his in his uh in his repertoire to begin with to yeah, me I, re I respect him for being professional about everything but i also wouldn't have minded to see him lose his cool a little bit and show that he cared you know because you can only be so calm for so long and if not with the reporters, uh, throw, the throw, throw sticks on the ice, you know, whatever. Right. Not that it would have mattered again. I, I, I always come back to what, what Chris keeps saying is like, they're just not good. So it's like, you know, what, what, what choice did Ralph Kruger have? What system could he play? What, what lineup change could he make? What stick could he throw? What curse word could he, you know, say to change anything? Um, who knows, but wouldn't have hurt to try. Because now, now look at him. <laughs> if you can find him, if, uh, if he's, uh, yeah, I don't know that he will be able to be looked at uh, based on what happens to former Sabres coaches and GMs. He will evaporate into nothing and we will never hear or see from him again. Jonah, your thoughts. I was just thinking about how it's probably unlikely that he'll evaporate into nothing, but <laughs> And also that, you know, he's probably going to go overseas and coach club rugby or cricket or something like that. This guy is very resourceful in these sports jobs and the things that he can do. He can talk his way into a lot of jobs. I actually don't think be. Ralph Kruger is the worst hockey coach I've ever seen. I think it was a bad mix with this team and this season and a lot of the things that snowballed this year. But he seemed to coach them up a little bit last year at least in the first part of the season. And I don't know if he'll be an NHL coach again. I don't even know if he'll be a, you know, a major league hockey coach in any way again, but I think he has, he went 10 years good communication jobs. and leadership. And I actually don't think this is the end of Ralph Kruger being a coach teacher type person in some way, in some form. I do think there's maybe some, this was supposed to be his redemption story a little bit, at least in terms of NHL hockey coaching. So maybe that comes in some other fashion, but I guess I'm just saying, I, I think Phil Housley was a worse coach than Ralph Kruger. And I think there's ways that you can look at this and, and maybe think that Ralph Kruger was scapegoated for problems that weren't his doing. But when you lose that many games and you have no cards you can play and no buttons you can push and nothing's getting any better, especially in the NHL where coaches get fired quicker than in any other sport, you know, the time did come where this had to happen. That is an interesting thought, Jonah, uh, because a lot of people don't hold that belief. I think just a lot of people were 
look at, and, and I, I, I disagree with you. I just think that, I think that he was a, a terrible coach. Um, mostly because he well, was, maybe he was not a good coach in, in the system that he chose to play and not modifying it and the X's and O's and the positions he put players in. But if you listen to what he said, a lot of what he said made sense. It got, you started to roll your eyes and thought, you know, we heard it all before, but I thought when he explained the problems that they had and the way they were doing things, it sounded like he had a pretty good read on why this team wasn't any good and couldn't get them to play any better, but didn't seem lost in terms of what, they should be doing and what they're not doing. But maybe I just like him because he fills our notebook. I, I think there, there was part of that too. And I'm not there as often as everybody else and don't have to write about the Sabres every time. If I'm there, I often write about the team that wins the game, which usually isn't the Sabres. So maybe it was harder to gauge, you know, how much bullshit was coming out of his mouth as opposed to stuff that seemed to me to make sense more often than not. Jonah Bronstein, Ralph Kruger apologist. I I don't know if it's that, but I think the rhetoric that he was the problem and they had to make the move got a little too hot, is I guess my point. Should be noted that Jonah Bronstein also believes that OJ didn't do it. I, I can hold both opinions in my head at the same time. You're not afraid to back up a unpopular opinion an uncommon opinion i guess that's unpopular i also think i was rooting for ralph Kruger to be the coach on opening day next year so that you had to ride around the city in a tricycle in a diaper riding a tricycle yep um i would have done it too a big story i would have done it i don't think it would have been a story some people might have come out to see it like it's a story I would have told over and over again after it happened. Oh, I see. I see. I thought you meant like Channel Channel 4 would be out there to cover it. I think it. Channel 4 would be out there covering it too. They might have actually. And seven. I was already, I mean, I, I was so, obviously I wouldn't have made that statement if I wasn't convinced that he was going to get fired. But had that happened, I'm guessing I would have probably tried to turn it into some sort of fundraiser for Make-A-Wish or whatever. But I would have done it. I know there are other people that have made uh, bold Bold that's your wish. and then got no, got no way. What's that? But that's your wish. They give you the opportunity. To make <laughs> yeah, I was, yeah, I was. I want to ride a tricycle and a diaper. <laughs> right. I would allow any other sick. If there were some sick children out there that also wanted to ride around the tricycle, uh, uh, Lafayette Square in a in a tricycle, they could have joined me. We could have made like a little convoy. Good All times. Right. Let's bring in uh, Mike Vaccaro from the New York Post. Um, But after these words. Tim Graham and Friends is brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and business consultants. CTBK is a leading accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in Amherst, New York. CTBK pairs every project with a focus on a human connection between its team and the client for assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on mergers and acquisitions, CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, 
That's 716-630-2400. CTBK, over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond. On this episode of Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, we are joined by Mike Vaccaro, New York Post columnist, and that's enough of a credential right there, uh, but he is making his appearance so we can talk about his beloved alma mater, and there's something about that. Maybe we need to get into <laughs> alma maters, but it's something about Bonaventure graduates that uh, really really wave that banner. Anyway, uh, Mike Vaccaro, thank you for doing this. It's good to be here, Tim. Thanks for having me. And um, big doings for St. Bonaventure basketball team. Mark Schmidt, of course, having a marvelous season, uh, winning the regular season title, then winning the tournament. And uh, we'll play Louisiana State on Saturday. But you were just telling us right before we hit the record button, this is, uh, this is causing some problems in the Vaccaro household. My wife is an LSU graduate, so I mean, I don't, I don't know what, the, I'm, I'm not good at math, so I'm not sure what the probability of the two of us meeting in the first round of an NCAA tournament was. I mean, 316 Division One teams or however many, and, and there we are, especially because I don't think either, either fan base is all that terribly happy to see each other because they both think they were probably underseated. but uh, it's going to make for a lot of fun in my house between now and Saturday, that's for sure. How did you meet your wife? Well, I'm from Long Island, and she's from Dallas, and by way of of uh, Monroe, Louisiana. So naturally we met in Arkansas. <laughs> Actually, uh, we worked in a newspaper together in Arkansas. I was the sports editor of a small daily paper that covered the Razorbacks. And she was, uh, her first job out of LSU was covering cops and courts for the Northwest Arkansas Times. And, uh, you know, we just, uh, it's funny, we, we, we hit it off. Uh, my, my opening line, she loves to always tell people this, is do you drink beer? Which for bottom-edged people is the really the only opening line. So. It's, uh, it's, 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 been a, it's been a wonderful love story ever since, at least until now. I'm not sure, I'm not sure it can survive the brown and white against the purple and gold. <laughs> I mean, I guess that really does. I mean, that gets to the core of uh, how seriously Bonaventure grads take this, is that a basketball game uh, it, it may actually uh, lead to bloodshed on, yeah, on Saturday. Course, one of the two. You know, it, it's, it's funny, too, because, you know, Schmidt is, is famous for calling – the bottom of your fan base, a cult. And he says that with a lot of love and affection. And I, I know the connotation of cult isn't always, you know, cuddly and fun loving, but it really is kind of a, an appropriate, uh, you know, moniker. And believe me, when I tell you that my wife backs it up because she's seen it firsthand uh, watching me watch games. And I'll say here, which is funny because we've been married almost 26 years or, you know, we will get married. We will make it 26 if we make it past Saturday. And uh, she's not a sports fan, even, even remotely. She, she has zero interest in sports, even LSU sports. I'm, you know, during football season, I'm the guy who's glued to the, to the TV set watching my alma mater-in-law, as I call it, LSU play football, um, especially last year when they had that great year with Joe Burrow. So she doesn't really even care, but, you know, she, has, she, she kind of feels like she owes it to her friends who do care and who want the, you know, they, they, you know, they all want her to join the trash talk with me. So it's, a, it's kind of funny. She actually did say the other day in an unguarded moment, though, she's like, you know, I kind of want the bodies to win, you know, because I know it'll make you very happy, even though I know it'll make you incredibly insufferable. <laughs> well, she she gets to deal with this big, big platform stuff all the time. Like you said, LSU football, even the baseball program. I mean, this is a, you know, she doesn't need this. You no. need this. Yeah, base, 
basketball is it's, it's funny the last time LSU went to the final four when big baby was their player um and they beat duke and did to go to the final four i, I just remember and i covered that game it was in atlanta and i remember just feeling rage i'm like you know what it's not just that she doesn't care, but none of her friends who are big LSU fans care either. They'd rather the, they'd rather the football team beat Auburn next year than they'd ever go to the Final Four. And, of course, they were able to experience that. Uh, but uh, that, that's just the way it is. I mean, I mean what's hilarious, and I mean, I say this jokingly, but it's actually true. I'm sure that her, that her English survey classes freshman year were probably bigger than the freshman and sophomore classes of 88 and 89. So, I mean, at that bottom venture. So, it's a... They, they, we definitely had two different college experiences, that's for sure. I guess, you know, before I, I bring in uh, Joan and Matthew, and uh, of course they can always jump right on over me anyway. I, they, uh, they know that. Uh, I guess just your general thoughts on, on the Bonaventure season uh, that they've had, dealing with COVID, dealing with a couple players leaving during the season. Um, and of course, everybody says, well, all the schools are dealing with COVID, but in a conference like the Atlantic 10 where Bonaventure is that outpost. And I don't know if that adds to how difficult it was for them to navigate COVID as opposed to Providence or, you know, Rhode Island or any other school uh, in a different conference or whatever. But it's, I don't know. There's just, it seems to be that, that the odds were stacked maybe a little bit more against Bonaventure uh, in, in accomplishing uh, what they did. Yeah, because for one thing, they had they, they only had a two-game non-conference schedule. And, you know, once you get start getting into the nitty-gritty with bracketology and all this, all people want to talk about, they don't really care who you beat in your conference. They want to know who you scheduled in November and December. And there was no November for Bonaventure, and there was only a, a two-game December. So uh, that certainly made it challenging. Although I do, I'll say this, I, I do think in some ways this team was uniquely qualified to actually handle this kind of crazy season because you got five juniors – three of whom have been together and have started since day one, you know, Suni and Lofton and, uh, and Dom Welch. And you have, you know, in, 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 in general, Attaway, you have a guy who is just a winning player. And he, and he put in a year on the bench, you know, no, hardly anybody sits, you know, sits out of transfer here anymore. And he did, and he became a big part of the program last year. So he's a, he's an older type player. And, uh, you know, Darren Holmes was also a guy who you know, added to the mix last year. These guys are these guys are veterans. They're older players, who I think were were able to, to deal with the with the craziness a lot better than maybe some some younger teams might have. I mean, there are there, you know, there are no freshman contributors on this team. There's basically six juniors and one sophomore who play, and so I think that makes them uniquely qualified. What's funny is that you know, look, I mean, for for, for those of us who care about this team, I mean, you know, and, and we've all you know done what we can to kind of make it through the pandemic, you know, any way that we can, but. You know these these bottometry games for a lot of us were kind of like oxygen. You know, just these these islands of, of normalcy. And of course, the irony is that in, in, in a normal year where you're going to the first round of the NCAA playoffs, I mean, you're usually talking about a team that's already played 32, 33 games. These teams only played 20, so so every game has kind of been a real gift. Um, and I think we all would have felt that way if they'd gone five and 15, but they didn't go five and 15. I mean, they're 16 and four. They're Atlantic's 10 regular season champions. Atlantic 10 tournament champions, for those of us who have been around for 35 years and those others who have been around longer in terms of our involvement with St. Bonaventure, I mean, you know, I don't think we ever, there, were, there have been definite moments in our time and we never ever thought we'd see a season remotely like this. And now we've got this one to put on top of the one three years ago to put on top of the Andrew Nicholson one from 2012 and, 
And all of a sudden we're talking about, you know, one of the more successful programs in the Atlantic 10. And that's just not something I ever would have thought I would be describing some bottom-entry eyes back when I was either a student, when I was covering it for the paper in Olean, or even during some of the dark times uh, that followed. Mike, how would you compare this team, this season, uh, this moment to some of the other championship NCAA tournament teams that Bonner has had, uh, you know, I think five times in the last 50 years since that national finalist team in 1970? You know, Jonah, I would, I, I would liken it, I would say it's a better version of the 2000 team, which I think sometimes gets, gets, gets lost, even though, even though that was the first NCAA tournament team, you know, since 78, uh, and, and it was a team that we, I don't think a lot of us ever thought we were going to see back in the NCAA tournament. And Jim Barron was the coach that year, and it was very similar because, it, you know, that, that, that team had a couple of just terrific guards and Tim Wynn, um, and they had, and they had the, the big guy up front and casual Cyrus. And, you know, very similarly, that's what this team has. In fact, Oshun wears Cyrus's old number, 21. Um, and, you know, but, but, but I, but I do think that these, that, that this is a, you know, it's a 2.0 version of that team. I do think the play, I think, I think Lofton's a better player than when I think that uh, Oshuni is a better player than, than, than Caswell. Uh, and I think that, you know, one by one, the other players are just, it's just, it's just a better, a better fit. And that team took Kentucky to double overtime and, you know, really had a great chance to win the game in regulation. So uh, to, to me, that's the team that I'm always going to have a real fondness for just because they were the team that proved that, uh, it really could happen at Bonaventure uh, for, after a long period of time where the pundits all believe that, you know, maybe the best Bonaventure could hope for was a trip to the NIT every six or seven years. And I think that proved it different. And then, of course, when Schmidt came in, I mean, you know, there was the scandal that came in between. And you really thought that maybe that was the demise of the program. And, you know, he's only taken it to, a, to, to, to an all kind of different level. Um, look, I, I think this team is the best team I've seen. And I know that's interesting because they only really play five and a half guys, six guys, really. Um, and, you know, you're not supposed to win in, in, in 2021 playing an Ironman uh, unit like that. But the, 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 the players all fit so well together. They're so unselfish. They get along so well. It's so much fun to watch them. Now, the old timers talk about, you know, look, I mean, the team, the team gets, all, gets, all, gets all the glory. When you talk about, you know, the dusty old black and white films is that, 1970 team that Tim wrote so eloquently about last December. Um, well, it's nice of you to say that, but I will point out that it was an oral history. So I didn't really write any of it. Well, it was, it was all everybody else's words. So I, you can't say it's eloquent. Like maybe I did a good job compiling. You did do a good job compiling. You're, you're yeah, right. but not, I, I didn't know. No eloquence. And so I guess since I was one of the guys quoted, I'm saying I was really. You eloquent. were eloquent. But I mean, that, you know, it was a great story and I recommend anybody to go to the athletic who has even the, the most the remotest interest in St. Bonaventure and read that. It's a, a pack of lunch. It's a little long, but it's worth every, <laughs> it's worth every minute. But, but beyond that team, the team that really you know, captures a lot of imagination still was the year, two years before that, when Lanier was a sophomore, Billy Cowboy was a sophomore, Billy Butler was on the team. They had five guys who basically played 98% of the minutes, very similar to this year's team. And that team was called the Ironman Five, and they went undefeated during the regular season. And, you know, those, you know, People in their 60s and 70s and you know, 80s who remember both teams uh, say it's almost uncanny how this team reminds them of that team, not only because of the short rotation, but because of just how well they get along together. That's really what the reason why I enjoy this team so well. It's not just how well they play basketball, but how much they seem to enjoy playing basketball together. You mentioned packing a lunch. Um, you wrote a 2,500-word <laughs> Facebook post. This wasn't, even, this wasn't even for the New York Post, right? No, it was not. Well, I, I mean... mean 
the post would fire me if I submitted a 2,500 word about my, my about my devotion to St. Bonaventure basketball. So I know I know enough how to do that. Yes. But you did. I mean, where does that come from? I mean, the, one of the last things I want to do in my free time is write. Uh, you know, I write for a living. I generally do not like it. Uh, yeah. I don't enjoy writing. Um, it's the worst part of the job. I love the research. I love interviewing. Uh, but you actually felt so compelled to sit down in your free time and write 2,500 words on, on St. Bonaventure. Where does that come from within you? Well, you know, it's funny, Tim. Um, uh, three years ago during the 2018 season, I broke my leg. So I was, I mean, and I literally broke it like two days after the season opener. It's a, that, that part of it, was, it was a coincidence. But the, a guy that I used to know who was a student manager uh, uh, years ago at, at, at Bonaventure, actually it was, it was Mark Schmidt's first student manager, Ian Nolan. He used to put a, together something called the Bonaventure blog. And he asked me, like in the summertime, what I, you know, I want to occasionally write about this team. And it's hilarious because my first reaction was, oh, no. I mean, the last thing I want to do in my downtime is, is write A, but, you know, I, I mean, I enjoy this team too much. And part of the reason why I do enjoy my fandom of this team is really the only fan interest that I have. And so I, I, I don't feel compelled to be objective. I don't feel compelled to not be an idiot as I'm prancing around my house, you know, rooting and cursing and terrifying my dogs, um, you know, during these games. And I'm like, so the last thing I wanted to do was write. But then I, then I broke my leg and I was just sitting in a wheelchair for basically six weeks. And you know, I was still able to do my job at the post, but not the same way, obviously, when you can't get to the ballpark. So, and all of a sudden, I'm like, you know what, maybe I will. And, you know, so, I mean, during that season, periodically, while I was recuperating, and obviously, that was a great season. They went to the, they went to the NCAAs, they beat UCLA. And so, like, every couple of weeks, I would, I, I would submit something. And, you know, it's hilarious, because I'm used to writing in these 725-word bursts, which is what, you know, the daily column length is. And all of a sudden, I would sit down, and I would just, I would just write, you know, to write and to just say what I was feeling. What I, I happen to do have a lot of institutional knowledge about, about the program. So, you know, a lot of that could come out. And suddenly I was realizing that the stuff I was sending him was like 2,500, 3,000 words, but it was all like, you know, it was different from what I wrote because it was all just stuff that, you know, it's kind of like, I've always, I've always thought it was interesting that, you know, I find like, 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 like a Bruce Springsteen blog to be fascinating because the guy, the, the, if somebody's putting together a Bruce Springsteen blog, he's not getting paid for it. He's just writing these these massive screeds because he loves Bruce Springsteen so much. And frankly, which sports writer is this? <laughs> exactly. Because I'm of a belief that every Bruce Springsteen fan is actually a, pro a professional sports writer. Yeah, you're not allowed to get your baseball writer's card unless you're able to to to, to give the track list from his first five albums. But but uh, it's true. But uh, and, and so that's that, that's kind of where, I, where that's kind of the, the the genesis of this. So I did that that year. You know, not after every game. I, I think I did seven or eight or nine, whatever. Um, and I loved it. And, 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 and the funny thing was, of course, you know, we're all, you know, it is an ego business. No one ever forgets to put their byline on a story, Tim, right? So, I mean, you know, the feedback I got was extraordinary from other people who just, you know, well, I felt the same way and, you know, I do the same things during the game and, you know, and whatever. It was a very nice thing. And it was funny. I mean, I, it's not like I felt compelled to do that ever again until Sunday. And I'm watching that game on Sunday. You know, it, it was a weird game because, I mean, I think we all believed that they were getting in the tournament more or the other. So it was really kind of a, just a matter of taking care of some business to win the tournament that they did. And yet I'm just like, I'm sitting there, I'm like, man, I'd really like to write about this, but I don't, you know, the bottom blog doesn't exist anymore. And so it was, it was literally one o'clock in the morning and I couldn't go to sleep because all I was doing was be playing the game in my head. So I said, what the heck? And I said, and I sat down, and I, you know, I started and the next thing I knew I had 2,500 words. 
had no place to send it, so I put it on my Facebook page. I don't have a blog my, under my own name. And of course, the, whole, the, the, the funny part is the next morning I got a, you know, a, 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 my, my old friend Ian called me and said, I'm gonna put, I'm gonna put it, I'm gonna figure out a way to put this on, online so somebody can access it. I'm like, you do that. I can barely turn my computer on. And then the nice folks to say Bonaventure, Tom Missile, buddy of mine, who's uh, one of the big ones at Bonaventure, put it on the university website, so it's there now too. But, but yeah, I started life as a Facebook post, which I think it's perfect because I just, I just figured I'd start until I stopped. And I didn't stop until I was 2,500 words in. <laughs> and I know that makes me a lunatic and a, you know, a little pathological and plenty pathetic also, but what are you going to do? <laughs> you there, are worse, there are worse vices than that, is, is the way I explain it to my wife. Yes. It, well, it gets to, and maybe this is a journalism discussion of fandom. And um, I was just asked this in a mailbag recently. Uh, somebody asked me if, you know, am I a fan of the Bills? And I, you know, explain, and I occasionally have to give the explanation about you can't be a fan. And, and I think at some point you don't even have to think about it. Like maybe early on in the profession, you had to force yourself not to be a fan, but once you're around it, you get cynical. Uh, you've been burned a few times. Uh, we were just talking about it before we hit the record button. Um, things in the business can ruin your night, uh, ruin your morning. Sure. Uh, and I don't mean as an inconvenience, but from a personal standpoint. Yeah. Um, but my son, thankfully, I guess for me, is into baseball and basketball, two sports I don't cover. Uh, and that, and right behind me, my Indians hat. Like it's about the only bit of, you know, like I grew up with as an Indians fan and Browns and Cavs also. Um, but I've covered the NFL and I'm not a Browns fan anymore. And, I'm, right. and anyways, it's, it's good to have that draw to kind of keep you to keep you kind of plugged in to how a fan feels because that's, that's our audience. It is. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you, you referenced that thing that I wrote for the Facebook post on Sunday morning. I actually wrote for my Sunday column for the post. I, I will occasionally, you know, mention the fact to my readers that, you know, where I went to college, that's kind of become kind of a regular gag now. Um, but I, I brought it up because for exactly the things you said is that, I find it valuable to have to be so invested. Like I grew up, with, I and it's it, 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 what, what's different for me, especially similar for you, but it's even more uh, relevant. I think in my situation, I grew up on Long Island, so I grew up a Mets fan. I grew up a, you know, a, a, although I, I also rooted for the Yankees, I grew up a Jets fan. They also rooted for the Giants. I mean, that was the, the rule of, of, of my family was that you rooted for New York. You didn't necessarily, you know, care whether it was the Mets or the Yankees. Just you wanted them to do well. But I rooted for all these teams growing up. But you know, I've been doing this now in New York for 30 years. I mean, the first thing, you know, one thing, when you get in the business, you learn about, you know, you just don't have any real affections for the possibility of, of, of covering teams you used to root for. But then you actually work in the market where you grew up, like I do. I mean, and it's funny, I mean, because I have mentioned in my column before my rooting interest were as a kid, people just assume I'm a Mets fan now. And I have to just disabuse them every time and say, I swear to you, I have not lost one ounce of sleep over the Mets or the Knicks or the Islanders since, you know, 1988. I mean, it's a long time. I mean, what I root for is good stories. Now, a lot of times what follows, a lot of times with good teams, so therefore, you know, are you rooting for, for, for success from local teams? Well, one, it's good for business. And two, it's good for my business because, I mean, good stories. But, but look, I mean, you can also get, you can also get great stories. You know, I mean, the Sabres are a wonderful example, I suppose. I mean, you can certainly, you know, talk endlessly about about that train wreck you do work for the new york post i mean negative stories mm -hmm. uh, uh your your, your to, employer to, to, does not shy away no, we, are, we are not afraid to uh to 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 engage in the negative so 
And, and look, and I get that. And, and so I think it's important to remember what it's like to care so much about a team that like when I was a kid, you know, if the Mets lost a game on Tuesday, I, was, I didn't read the paper on Wednesday. And I, I mean, I, I remember that all these years later when I'm in a game and, and, you know, the Giants have lost a game. And I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to get a Giants fan to read about this again when the last thing in the world they want to do tomorrow is read about it? And I find that to be one of the challenges of the job. And it's, it's an exciting challenge of the job. But I mean, I think, I think you lose that if you lose at least, at least a, an engagement of sorts with fandom. And the bodies allow me that. I mean, I, 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 there, there is no reason for me to limit myself. The only thing I will do a lot of times if I'm going to a public venue, I will opt to stay on, on press row, like at a, at a bottometric game, only because I'm such a lunatic. And my wife can attest that in the house. I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to behave that way publicly. It's not pleasant to observe. And I'm and, and, and I'm so, and I'm so tied to my professional, you know, codices and so forth that I won't. I won't act that way on press row. I'll act like a eunuch on press row, even though it's killing me. And so as a result, when, you know, Andrew Nicholson's team uh, made that great run in Atlantic City in 2012, I mean, I barely batted an eye and I never smiled once through it all until I was driving home. And of course, then it was wonderful. Uh, two years ago, when the Bonnies lost a heartbreaker to St. Louis in the A-10 finals, same thing. I had friends who were begging me to come over and spend the last like 10 minutes of the game. Come on, man, have some fun. I'm like, you have no idea. I can't. I just can't. And I didn't. I mean, now it's that's ridiculous. I should have fun, right? I wasn't I wasn't working in those games, but I just know that I just I, I just don't I don't like the way that I you know in retrospect I don't really I'm not really proud of the way I behave as a fan while watching these games and but but I am because I mean to me I understand then you know I, I can I can I can cover a Jets game from thirty thousand feet totally detached, but I understand that there's a bunch of people who are not watching it that way. They're completely emotionally invested. And I can remember that because I actually do have a fan interest in my life. Mike, what do you think of the Bonnie's chances here? Because I don't know, you've covered, you've covered these tournaments before and this one will be different. This one will not be like anyone that we've seen. And usually you look at the nine and the eight seed and you think that's a tough spot to be. I'm a Mizzou grad. They, they got a nine draw and I was kind of, you know, bummed about it because you know that even if they win the first one, they're up against sure. the number one seed. But do you feel like maybe there's a little more variability with that, uh, given the nature of this college basketball season? I do because you just never know how a team's going to react to playing essentially in an empty gym. I know there's going to be people there, but it's not going to be the same. Now, I say that, and it's funny, you know, oddly enough, Bonaventure being as small as it is, it travels extraordinarily well. And so I was at the Kentucky game, and look, nobody travels better than Kentucky. And at that Kentucky Bonaventure game, now whether they were outnumbered or not, they, they, you know, the Bonaventure fans are certainly a lot louder. So I can, you can only imagine if this game were being played, you know, pick a tournament site. If this, if this game were being played in Cleveland, you know, and it was LSU Bonaventure in Cleveland, I mean, that place would be so pro Bonaventure. And look, I mean, you get it. I mean, obviously the team gets a, gets a rise back. So on one level, I would argue that it's almost, uh, you know, it, 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 it's a strike against the Bonnies because it's going to be in an empty gym. That said, I think what you're looking, what, what you're hoping for, are two things that bodies. One, you want to be able to control the pace, and they're incredible at controlling the pace. I mean, high-scoring teams in the Atlantic Ten didn't score against them. So if that if that can transfer to LSU, who's a better version of the St. Louis's and VCU's and Davidson's, they they should, you know, face during the regular season, keep the game in the 60s, they got a shot. Um, but but you know, to 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 me, to me, the other thing is that, you know, they're so thin. I mean. You know, if somebody sprains an ankle in the first minute of the game, if somebody whistles Kenny Lofton for two quick fouls, and all of a sudden, 
things are different. You know, it's harder for a team like that uh, really to recover. So if they can stay healthy and if they can control the pace, they're going to be in it at the end. That's not going to say they're going to win. And it's not even going to say they're going to win by a heart, by a deuce the buzzer. But that's going to be a game people are going to want to watch the last 10 minutes of the second half, I believe, assuming those two things are, are, are in order. Where do, you, where do you think Bonaventure should be seated? I know that you're, you're, uh, you come with this with, uh, with some bias, but you did mention that you, you didn't think they were fairly seated. No, I know. I, 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 to be honest with you, to, to me, I, I said that, but I meant that a lot of people didn't think it. I actually think nine seed is exactly probably where they, where, where they deserve. I mean, they did not have an out-of-conference schedule. So, and the, you know, they, 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 they didn't go undefeated in the league. They lost four games in the league. I mean, it's, they had a very, very good season. To me, it's, they are you know, eight or nine, whatever. Pick two, there's no difference between the two. To me, nine is, is a perfect seating. It's an unfortunate seating. I mean, in some ways, I mean, it was, it was hilarious to hear people who live and die with a team like I do who, was, who were almost wondering if we better root to lose a championship game so you get a 10 seed because you have a better shot than against maybe a Madden 7, then you get a 2 instead of a 1. I don't, you know, I look at the fact that it's the highest seed in bottom of your history by a lot. And to me, that's, you know, exactly where they belong. Where they belong. Uh, I heard my, my, my good friend Pete Thamel from Yahoo Sports was raging about how unfairly seated they were, and I, I, I just disagree. Unfairly seated would be, you know, if Gonzaga was the one option for one thing out of the 8-9 game. It's not. You clearly have the, the most uh, manageable number one in the bracket. They probably really shouldn't be a number one now because of their injury, but so if you do wind, wind up in the second round, whoever's, whoever's going to be, Bonaventure or LSU, you got to like their chances of at least having a puncher's chance of taking it out number one that round. So to me, I mean, I, I had zero problem with the season to me. I mean, in fact, you know, once they won the game and everybody asked me, what do you think that's going to mean? Um, you know, there was one uh, you know, bracket that I saw. Uh, they were as high as a six. I'm like, that's just not going to happen. I mean, it's not going to happen, A, because of, you know, it, it's just not going to happen, but it's, I don't think they deserve to be that high, frankly. I mean, I think eight, I think eight nine is exactly where they deserve to be. You're pretty bold of you, Mike. Uh, not just happy to be there. You're looking at which number one seed you're going to knock off. <laughs> hey, you know what? Here's the thing. I, I was just happy to be there in 2000, and you know, and they almost beat Kentucky. And I'm like, you know what? Why not? And then you, you, you see teams like Loyola. You see other teams of similar ilk to Bonaventure make a run. The VCU's, the George Masons. You're like, you know. You get, you get, you get a bounce here, bounce there. Why not? You're in the, you know, I mean, there are, there are teams you don't ever want to go up against. You don't want to go up against that, uh, you know, UNLV team, even though they lost, you know, in that, in that year, that, that, that would be a, a no contest. You don't want to go up against Lou Cinder every year, but I mean, look, I mean, if, 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 if you have a team you think is good, and I think that most bottom of your fans, even through their rose colored glasses, I mean, I think it's fair to say this team is really good. They've beaten good teams. They haven't panicked. I mean, they're, 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 they're going to give you representative effort. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to win the game. But, I mean, if you believe that you have a representative team, then why not feel that, you know, if you play well and you get a team on the right day, you're going to win. So, and, you know, yes. Look, I mean, if we, I do think right now this, the, the, the game, the game that, 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 that I feel less confident about is the LSU game. I think LSU is, is in a better place right now than Michigan is because, you know, Michigan uh, is hurting right now. Um, but, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, I'll, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. You'll, you'll keep this on tape and certainly play it back to me if it turns out one-on-one to 40. I covered a few of those games one-on-one to 40. I still remember sitting courtside in Morgantown, West Virginia, 
Tom Chapman throwing his jacket, getting kicked out of a game. The Bonnie's lost 125 to 64. So that's always what I tell people. If you want to question my credibility, knowing you know what the hard times are like at St. Bonaventure, trust me, I saw that. <laughs> you mentioned being in Cleveland for that 2000 tournament and being at, at big Bonnie's games over the years and how well that fan base travels and how many people might be at this game if they were allowed to be in a normal season. What is it? Do you think it's been like for the Bonnet faithful not being able to go to the Riley Center this year and not being able to gather and, and enjoy this season in the in the way that they could in, in any other year? Well, look, I feel I feel worse for the students because you know you get you essentially get four years to to enjoy that aspect of campus life, which is very enjoyable. I mean, you know, even when they're terrible, going to the games is a fun experience, a fun way to spend you know two hours you know someplace other than the Burton or or, or you know wherever. It's I feel worse for them, and I feel terrible for the faithful, you know, locals who who have supported that team, you know, with their with their wallets for decades. But the, thing, the the weird thing is, I mean, so much of what the Bonaventure experience is are alumni who refuse to go away, like myself, you know, like the, the, you know, the, the we're all kind of like honorary members of that, like you know, you know, twenty four year old guy who, who's supposed to have graduated four years ago but still shows up on campus a lot. Um, in a lot of ways, that's us and. You know, we would probably, I mean, I wouldn't have gone to any games this year. I mean, I would have watched as many as I could, you know, on streaming or whatnot. I wouldn't have gone, I, mean, I probably wouldn't have made a trip to the Riley Center this year. Maybe I would have gone to the Fordham game because it's close for me. Maybe now I would have made, a, you know, professional arrangements to cover the first round, you know, another game in the first round wherever Bonaventure was at. Um, but, you know, most of us, the, the overall majority of Bonaventure fans don't go to games anymore. Because we're doing other things, we're, we're other places in the country, so it's, it's not exactly an easy commute to the Riley Center. So I think a, I, th I think a lot of us are enjoying it. It, it. It's like I said earlier. I mean, it really is kind of a shot of normalcy. Yes, it's weird to see the Riley Center with nothing but cardboard cutouts, and it's really surreal because if you know, if, like I know where I'm sitting in my cardboard cutout, so I see myself, you know, with my beer, my NIT shirt, about seven times a game. So that's kind of a little strange. But um, it, it, you know. From that standpoint, now look, a lot, a lot of us would have made a pilgrimage to the NCAA tournament. So yes, you know, we feel a little bit, I guess some people feel a little you know, deprived of that, but look, I think, I think once you're watching the game, one of the things about, 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 about sports in general, I find is that if you're at the game and you're covering the game, so you see how empty it is, I think it makes more of an impact on you than if you're watching it on the TV. To me, especially like, like the NFL, after a while you're watching on TV, you forget there's actually people in the, in the stands. And, uh, you know, it's, I think that's part of the experience also is that, uh, you know, most of us would have been watching this and following this on TV anyway. Do you have How'd a favorite player? Oh, go ahead, Matthew. I'm sorry. How'd you end up at Bonaventure? Great question. I was actually signed, sealed, and delivered to go to Dayton, believe it or not. Um, I went to a high school. The, the religious order of the high school was the same at Dayton. So I was in there. They knew what I kind of wanted, wanted to do. And they had a community basis program there. And so I really didn't. It's funny, I didn't give a lot of thought to it, but my senior year, I went to the Lapchick tournament, uh, which St. John's used to host every year. And it was the year St. John's went to the final four and they almost lost to St. Bonaventure in the first round. So, and, and I, I knew about St. Bonaventure only because of Bob Lanier, the way most people who don't live in Buffalo or Rochester know about Bonaventure. And I just remember going and, and, you know, and talking about it with my, with my guidance counselor, like, you know, they have a really pretty good journalism program too. You might want to take a look at that. And of course, the funny thing is I'd already sent my deposit into Dayton and, and on a lark on Easter vacation that year, my father and I 
took a drive to Bonaventure. And we happened to get there literally on, you know, one of the 17 picture postcard days you get in Olean every year, where it's 71 sunny and that campus just looks like you've literally, you know, arrived at, the, at heaven's doorstep. And I was like, oh my God. And, you know, I, I was hooked, you know, and uh, it was really just by, 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 by weird dumb luck that I wound up, that I wound up there. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've really, in some ways, just never kind of left. <laughs> you know, I got to say, I was maybe not signed, sealed, and delivered, but I was accepted and planning on going to Bonn in 2000. And then I visited in February and <laughs> quickly changed my mind. And I ended up going opposite, to a different school. Yeah, the exact opposite experience. And of course, the funny thing is the flip side of my experience is, you know, five, six years out of school, I covered a game at, uh, at uh, Chapel Hill in, in like February. And I'm walking around like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you could have come someplace like this and you chose to go someplace like that. I mean, like, I mean, that, 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 that's, that, there, there is, it is a wonderful place. It is not a perfect place. And the weather <laughs> is one of the things that you start with. Do you have a favorite player on this team that you, that you really enjoy watching? I drink enough Attaway. I can watch Attaway all day. He's tough. He's smart. His basketball IQ is off the charts. You can just tell, I mean, you know, I, I don't, I don't, you know, you don't like the profile of player, but you can tell he's an Indiana player. Smart, knows, you know, incredibly unselfish, uh, you know, plays like, you know, he, he could have easily played on Hickory High or could play in any, you know, those great Indiana type teams that you've seen through the years. He just, he's just so smart, so tough. I mean, he almost had his nose broken in two in, in, against St. Louis, you know, sat out, came back with his stuffing in his nose and he played great. And he just, you know, he hit a, you know, he, hit, he hadn't hit more than two threes all year. And then against Davidson, the game's in the line. He gets the ball in the corner. He makes the three. Uh, I just love everything about his game. I mean, he's a winner to me. And it's funny because, I mean, really, I mean, of the five starters, he's probably the guy that you think of fifth, if maybe fourth. Maybe it's him or Dom as the number four or five guy because you always think of Oshun. You always think of Lofton as well you should. And look, I mean, Holmes has been a, a top scorer for them for two years. Um, so, I mean, it, it takes you a while before you start thinking about Attaway, but I, I just love watching that guy play. And, uh, and, I, and, and I actually met him uh, last year. Bonaventure had a 100th anniversary celebration of the program, 50th anniversary of the Final Four. And uh, there was a, a small dinner the night before that I was fortunate enough to be invited to with the, the 1970 Final Four team and, and last year's Bonaventure team. And it was, you can really tell, you know, and not even all, all the same players are still here, but Attaway was a guy that I knew nothing about because he was sitting out. And he was a guy who just who introduced himself to every player. I mean, you, you had to see the look on Greg Gary's face and Matt Gant's face that he knew who they were. He had taken the thing, like, well, I'm sure he didn't grow up a fan of the 1970 bottom He had taken the time to see who they, who they were, what they had done. Part of that is a credit to Mark Schmidt who makes sure these kids are aware that they're not you know, beginning a link. They're kind of, you know, Extend you extending a length, so that's part of it. But you know, I really was impressed by Attaway, who knew all those players by name, who was accessible, and he just really impressed me that day. And I mean, I, I had no idea what kind of a player he was, and now I know what kind of a player he is. So I put those two things together. He's he's among the favorite guys I've ever watched. He's he's played twenty games for the team. I get it. I mean, but and I mean, look, I mean, I have a, I have a soft spot for a lot of ex bodies You know, guys who were friends of mine in school, and guys who I've gotten to know a little bit. I mean, Elmer Anderson. I, I love, he was, in, I was in school with Elmer and he's one of the great guys you'll ever meet. Darren Quinlan's the same way, a guy I went to school with. Um, I could go on and on with all the, with, with my favorite, you know, bottom of your people, Billy Calvo. I mean, I, I, again, I, I, I could go endless. But he, of a guy that just from strictly watching him play, 
Uh, I, I love watching Adelaide play. I'd be interested to hear uh, your thoughts and also Jonah, because he covered them, saw him quite a bit at Cheek in Cheektowaga High School. Uh, Dominic Welch, uh, was this expected? I mean, to be this type of player in the Atlantic 10? Uh, because coming out, I just recall, yeah, he broke the records, obviously, and uh, he was very uh, highly accoladed, if, if I can even turn that into a verb. Um, but there was kind of like maybe people weren't so sure. Uh, and then he's just turned into a, a, a very good college basketball player. Well, Schmidt always talks about him and how impressed he is with how he had no idea how high his basketball IQ was and uh, how quickly he's adapted to look, obviously when, 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 when you give him space, he's going to shoot a three and he's going to make a lot of them, but he, he's not just a one trick pony. I mean, he's a guy who plays, you know, he's, He's a lockdown defender, which you just—I don't think anybody saw coming, including Schmidt. He's a great rebounder. I mean, you know, he's—he's—he's—he's he's, he's, he's terrific rebounder. He's unselfish, um, and he's a force. I mean, you know, sometimes I mean, sometimes you have to harness that. I mean, I mean, he came very close to to getting in some trouble in both the Duquesne game and the uh, um, the VCU game because I mean, he's, you know, he can get you know he wants to defend his teammates and you know, and he's not going to take any crap from anybody. So. Uh, sometimes you got to reel that back in, but I, I know Schmidt says that he's a guy, one of the most surprising players he's ever coached because he just, you know, he, he knew he was getting a very good shooter and a very good scorer, but he didn't know the other aspects of the game he was getting, and he's been you know, really uh, happily surprised by 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 all of that. Did I read that right, Jonah? I mean, my my take on him coming yeah. out of high school was that. Well, y- yes and no, uh, and I think Mike analyzed it very well. There were questions about Don Welch, not necessarily. What, how good he was at shooting and scoring. I mean, he set the all-time scoring record and he was triple, quadruple teamed on a lot of those nights in high school. But he did have to go to a prep year and there were questions about his defense and the other parts of his game. And I think when he signed at Bonaventure, some of the high school coaches that, that I had talked to wondered if that was the right fit, if he was the right type of player to play in Mark Schmidt's scheme, is very uh, focused on defense and doesn't really let one player take all the shots and do some of the things that he did in high school. And the fact that he's integrated so well is a credit to Dom and also a credit to Mark Schmidt and the rest of the coaches at Bonaventure. But it also reminds me, Mark Schmidt's done very well with junior college players. And a lot of junior college players come in with that type of dynamic where they were the star player that took a lot of shots and they have to become more of a team player. So I think that has maybe helped Schmidt and his coaches figure out how to get the best out of a player like Don Welch. Well, I think one of the things that really impressed Schmidt too, is that, you know, early in his freshman year, he went down with a leg injury of some sort and he missed six weeks, I think. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, he comes and comes and played right away, but then he, but then, but then he didn't, you know, he was sidelined. And a lot of times, especially as a freshman, you come in and kind of really be discouraged and you're not, but he came back a different player. I mean, he spent his time away as opposed to brooding and feeling sorry for himself. He had watched, you know, other guys in the team and how they approach things, you know, including Loft and his classmate, but also the seniors in that team. And, you know, Schmidt talks about it. He came back a completely different player off that injury. It was like a whole different Dominic Wilson he saw. And he, that really impressed him too, because he took advantage of what, what could have been a, a terrible situation. And like, I mean, they, they, you know, they fell a, a tough roll away from actually making the, the tournament as a freshman. And part of the reason is because the last 10 or 15 games, Dom Welch was every bit as good as Lofton and Oshini was, and everybody as good as the seniors in that team were. How are you going to watch the game on Saturday? Um, well, it's funny. I actually have to cover the Georgetown game that precedes it. So 
uh, and there'll be a little bit of a layover. So that's going to be kind of fun. Um, but uh, I'm going to watch it at my house. I'm going to watch it with my wife. I mean, and, 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 you know, my wife will probably just because, you know, she feels like she's got to play the part. She'll wear LSU gear and root for LSU. But uh, it's not going to be as bad as it could have been if I would have married an actual fan of LSU basketball. But uh, So you know, do you have to, will you, will your editor allow you to pause or delay filing uh, yeah. so that you can enjoy well, the he, game or? Well, that's part of the reason why I'm doing the game I'm doing. Cause I, 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 uh, I, you know, I, I will be, you know, once the, once the outcome happens with bottom edge, win or lose, I'll take my 10 minutes to celebrate or my 15 minutes to, you know, to, to mourn the, the end of the season. You know, and then I still have about an hour and a half to deadline. So I can, I, I can figure that part of it out. But uh, one thing I did say to them, and it's funny, I said, you know, I really don't think I should write another bottom edge column. And they said, no, you really shouldn't. Enough. <laughs> <laughs> you're right about that good scouting report you shouldn't write another bottom of your column for a while let them win a game or two then you can go back to it i'm like yeah, so is the georgetown column uh, patrick ewing win or lose yeah pretty much i mean that's the reason why the column is appealing is because it just because because it's patrick i mean you know i like to say you know it's funny i mean the new york post is a, is a local paper it's a great local you know new york city is pretty fun local but it's a local paper so if you have a, a tie in new york you know we're going to uh we're going to uh to play that fiddle for as long as we can. And, you know, Patrick hasn't played here in 20 years, but he's still of us. And so that's going to be, uh, that's going to be, you know, the, probably the focus of our college basketball. And even if the, even if the mighty Bonnie's managed to pull it out, I don't think they're going to make the back page, unfortunately. If we haven't kept you too long, Mike. Oh, I'm sorry, Jonah. You actually had a, a well, I, basketball. I have a listener, a listener submitted question for you. Uh, okay. One of our loyal friends of the show wondering, you know, he had 2,500 words to write about St. Bonaventure, but not a word yet written about Damon men's basketball. <laughs> Joe. I wonder, I wonder who that listener is. I wonder who that listener was. Well, you know, you can tell, <laughs> tell said listener that I was watching the last uh, 10 minutes of the game yesterday, even though the first, uh, you know, 90 seconds of that game was a 10-0 run for St. John, St. Thomas Aquinas. So I almost, I almost ran away because I could almost sense he knew that I was watching. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I was thrilled for Mike McDonald. Uh, he's, he was he was a guy I went to college with, and man, he's a good coach. And it's just so much fun to watch him have success there. And uh, I did take pictures of him cutting down the nets, so I I will be I will be forwarding them to him uh, at some point today. But uh, but uh, yeah, that's a uh, that's a hey, it's not a bad year for Western New York basketball, right? I mean, Damon College Division Two, the Bodies Division One, the Bulls came very close, and you know, with with UB and. Uh, you know, unfortunately, Niagara and Canisius probably didn't have a chance when you had the Patino hurricane in the MAC. But, uh, but uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good, it's a good year for Western New York basketball, and Damon's part of that, uh, part of that equation. Love the big kid. Love watching him. Oh yeah, he's, he's fun to watch. If we haven't kept you too long, I know that people are going to tune in. We have a lot of Yankees fans in Western New York who listen to this podcast. I'm sure are curious if. Uh, if Mike Vaccaro is going to talk about the Yankees. So, uh, or the Mets, whatever. I mean, what, what is your, what's your, what's your preview of New York baseball in, in 2021? Well, I think they're both playoff teams. I mean, now whether they both make the playoffs is a whole different you know, question, I guess, but uh, the Yankees are, are definitely, you know, they're, they're, they're a 94, 96 win team. Um, you know, and uh, to, to me, they're as good as anybody in the American league. Um, so uh, the issue for every team in baseball is, you know, can you compete with the Dodgers? And really, secondarily, can you compete with the Padres if the Padres beat the Dodgers? Because both those teams look like they're going to be juggernauts. Uh, look, I, th I think the Mets are a 92-93 win team also, you know, unless their uh, ancient dysfunction kind of transfers ownerships. Uh, but uh, they have the best pitcher in the game, so that's going to be a nice thing to rely on every five days. Their lineup is going to be a lot of fun. 
Lindor is already making a lot of friends. Uh, he's so much fun to watch, and he, I think he makes them a whole different, different, different ball club. You know, we've gotten we've gotten a little tired, I think, of the Subway Series around here. And I'm not saying that I wouldn't necessarily want to inflict on the rest of the country another Subway Series World Series because I don't think that a lot of people outside of the tri-state area were, were terribly fired up about that in 2000. But those six Subway Series games are going to play against each other this year, or four, however many they play this year, are going to have a lot more meaning than they have in a lot of in a long time because both teams are very good. Uh, both teams are definitely playoff quality. They can, both teams could win their divisions, I think. Although, you know, the, the, the you know the Rays are still going to be a tough a tough out for the Yankees and the Braves are a formidable foe for the, for the Mets and other teams in that division, but it's going to be fun. You know, I, I mean, I, and I really hope for the fans in New York that, uh, you know, maybe by May you can get, you know, 15,000 fans in and then who knows as things go the rest of the year. But, uh, but uh, that's really something that was, that was missing last year. I mean, despite the, you know, everything about that season was weird, but uh, those games, you know, with fake noise and cardboard cutouts, uh, uh, that was a little bit odd. I, this just popped into my head. So I'll, I'll throw one more question at you. And I really I'm having trouble formulating it, but it's, it's, I guess it's a philosophical question about your job, your career, Mike. Um, we've, we just mentioned Patrick Ewing and you making reference of the Mets having the best, best pitcher in baseball for whatever reason made me think of Dwight Gooden. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that led me to an, uh, another thought about New York sports gods. And you covering these people, this is not like me covering Buffalo sports. There are Buffalo sports gods, Dominic Hasek, uh, Jim Kelly. Sure. But that's not the same echelon of these icons that you interact with, you've dealt with, you write about. What's that dynamic like to be a chronicler of the like the pan, almost a, you know, the, it, again, I'm getting redundant and trying to explain where I'm going with this, but there is a mystique about the New York sports icons of that. You probably didn't, you know, Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, Joe Namath, all that stuff. What's that? What's that like? Well, I think, I think the guy who embodies that exactly what you're trying to say is Derek Jeter. And so I covered Derek Jeter's first game in Cleveland in 1996 and I covered his last game in Boston uh, 2013, I think was, was was his last year, and of course I covered his last at Batty Yankee Stadium, which was Hollywood, and everything in between, just about everything in between. Um, I spent a year or two out of town, but you know, for the most part, I, I was I covered every ounce of Derek Jeter's career, and of course Jeter, you know, is spoken about now in the same lineage of Ruth and Gehrig and DiMaggio, and I know it makes a lot of people's eyes roll who aren't Yankee fans or aren't New Yorkers. Uh, they think he's he's the product of a lot of New York hype, although I would argue that. You know, you, you get how many hits did he have? 3,600 hits. That's not, that's not hype. That's a lot of hits. And he got five World Series rings, of which he was a, a vital member of all five teams. That's not hype. That's not New York. Um, but I, the one thing I will say is that, I mean, I, I think it was important, and it was important to me. You know, there was a term that Red Smith used to use about, uh, and I think his sports editor, Stanley Woodward, had given him this term, don't god up the players. Don't make them more than they are. And, look, it was easy to kind of get on the Derek Jeter chain some, to train sometimes, because everything was working well. This guy used to you know, work his way through the maximum hot hundred every year. And then he would also go out and hit 320 and win a World Series. I mean, life doesn't get better than that. And he would always seem to do something, the flip play, you know, getting that hit in his last at bat. And he I mean, you know, Joe Girardi once said, just check his hands and the man's a movie. And 
while that was true, you kind of had to try and, and, and not get caught up in that because it was easy to do that. And if you do, then you're just another, you know, fanboy blogger who's just, who doesn't have, you know, a responsibility to kind of try and tell both sides of the story. But the thing of it is, I mean, he was so good that a lot of times both sides of the story were the same story. He was great. They won because he was great. Um, and, but one of the great things about covering a guy like that is that you appreciate that not all athletes are like that. Um, look, I mean, Saquon Barkley is a great player, but, you know, he's, he hasn't really accomplished a lot yet. You can, you can, you can write breathless prose when he, when he, when he fires off a 68-yard run when he's healthy, but he's not, you know, the dead or junior of football right now. So I think it's great to be able to have him as a reference point because it allows you to be able to maybe be a little bit more perspective-laden when you're writing about other, other athletes. Um, I, was, I, I didn't cover Joe Namath and I didn't cover Joe DiMaggio, obviously, but I do think that I got a sense of what it was like to be around those guys when they were playing by uh, being around Jeter so much, even more so than A-Rod. A-Rod was obviously his own media circus, but for a lot of different reasons. I mean, Jeter's was the old school. He's great. He's always great. He's been great for years. You know, how do you how do you write about him being great a different way today than you did last Wednesday? It's the exact opposite of covering the Buffalo Sabers. <laughs> I'm not like I've covered a lot. I've covered a lot of lousy teams in my day, but not nothing nothing quite like that. Wow. At least there was some news today. It, it broke through the malaise okay. uh, yeah. of uh, of all those losses. Uh, there was something different to write about if you That's cover right. the Sabers. Um, Mike, anything you want to add that we didn't ask you about? Oh, man, this has been fun. I've enjoyed it. I mean, God, I could talk about the Bonnies for at least 2,500 words and probably 2,500 hours if you let me. But you probably run out of tape and you might even run out of questions by then. But uh, that has been fun. I appreciate it, Tim. It's great talking to you. Not so many words, though, that we carve out a little extra space for Mike McDonald. What's that? Not so many words though, that we couldn't carve out a little space for Mike McDonald. There's always got to be a place for royalty in this, in, in, in this town, right? So there, <laughs> there we go. Yeah, he is, he is Western New York's uh, Patrick Ewing. Uh, well, Western New first, York's Joe DiMaggio. It's the first family of Buffalo basketball. I mean, one son plays for Niagara, one son played for Penn and now works for the Nets. His brother-in-law was a great player for Navy. I covered his brother-in-law when he was just crushing Army every year as a great player at uh, Navy, Mike Heary. Uh, so, yeah, so it's, it's, it's definitely the first family of Buffalo. And one son working for the Brooklyn Nets. That's right. Exactly. So and, maybe uh, you can so get a column out of that. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure I will at some point. And then, you... <laughs> I, I actually, actually, I actually it's, it's, it's hilarious. I'll leave you with this. I mean, they, he, when, when he was playing a fairly Dickinson, he as a freshman, he had a game winning three to beat Rutgers. And it's hilarious. So I'm like, that's actually kind of a fun story. I could do something with that. And I called up, I called up Mac, who I've known 30 years. And he, he, was, he was like, no commenting, man. I'm like, what? <laughs> if I can't get you to talk, I should really retire and do something else. <laughs> Finally, I tried to explain to him what he was doing. I don't want to be on me. It's not going to be on you, egomaniac. I'm writing about the kid, but you watching it, you know. So, yeah, so he's, <laughs> he's the best, though. The, 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 the McDonald family is, is, is just, just you'll find, no, find nobody finer than anybody in that family. Mike's son might want to keep his distance because if you ever start breaking stories on the nets or getting some inside, you know, info, uh, he's, he's, he's stay, the he's finger's going to be pointed squarely. He's got to stay for me and Woods both because the, because the link is too obvious, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Mike, thanks for this. Uh, hopefully Absolutely. we didn't keep it too long here, but uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Me too, Tim. Guys, I appreciate it. Go right, thanks, so, thanks so much. All right. Thanks, guys.
Tim Graham and Friends is brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and business consultants. CTBK is a leading accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in Amherst, New York. CTBK pairs every project with a focus on a human connection between its team and the client for assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on mergers and acquisitions, CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, that's 716-630-2400. CTBK, over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond.